Here's a really special deal on a great product from our friends over at Fresh Pressed Olive Oil Club. You can now receive a $39 bottle of artisanal fresh pressed oil free if you just pay $1 to help cover shipping. And there's nothing else you must buy now or ever. It's a wonderful opportunity because with olive oil, my number one rule is the fresher, the better. That's because the olive is a fruit and olive oil is actually a fruit juice. Like any other fruit juice, extra virgin olive oil is at its glorious peak of freshness, flavor, and nutritional potency when fresh squeezed. And that's what's missing with so many supermarket olive oils. After sitting on the shelf for months or even years, they've lost their freshness and can't compare with just pressed Evu shipped direct from the new harvest. Here at Milk Street, we really like these oils' vibrant, grassy flavors, as well as the intoxicating aroma, just like a garden in a bottle. Prove it yourself with no obligation to buy anything ever. For your free $39 bottle direct from an award-winning artisanal farm, go to getfresh177.com. That's getfresh177.com. One last time, getfresh177.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Buying furniture is not easy. You want well-designed pieces that fit into a modern lifestyle, yet the look should be timeless. And you want a custom experience creating furniture designed specifically for your space. My suggestion is that you check out Cozy, a North American company that thoughtfully designs furniture for modern living. Their high-quality products are delivered quickly and are easy to assemble. Cozy also offers a great range of coffee tables, washable rugs, wall shelving, and credenzas. Their outdoor collection features high-quality modular sofas and sectionals made for outdoor living. You can visit their store in Toronto. Cozy now has expanded from an online market to their first in-person space, or go directly to their website at Cozy.com. That's C-O-Z-E-Y.com. Transform your living space today with Cozy. Visit Cozy.com to start customizing your furniture today. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for downloading this week's podcast. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, for our recipes, culinary ideas from around the world, or our latest cookbooks. Now, here's this week's show.
This is Milk Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Mm, you have to taste the flavor with your whole body. In order to feel the whole taste, you need to open your five senses. That was the venerable Chung Kwan, a devout Zen Buddhist nun from South Korea. She's appeared on Chef Eric Repair's cooking show, Avec Eric, and is now regarded as one of the world's top chefs. I'll be speaking with reporter Jason Struther later in the show about his visit to her temple. But first, it's time to head into the kitchen at Milk Street to speak with Raina Javeri about this week's recipe. Raina, how are you? Hi, Chris. I'm well. I just got back not too long ago from northern Thailand, Chiang Mai, and a guy called Andy Ricker lives there part-time just outside of town. And uh, we spent a day going around to different restaurants, which was great. But the next day, he gave me an eight-hour cooking lesson, which I desperately needed because <laughs> I didn't know that much about Thai cooking. And among other things, we made fried rice. I, I was really fascinated because fried rice is simple, but it has a really sophisticated flavor if you do it the way he did it. So he used a wok, of course, and I would guess we probably are not going to use one here. Uh, so what have we done to the recipe once I, I brought it back to Milk Street? So most cooks don't have the wok set up that Andy has in Thailand. So we actually modified this recipe using uh, a nonstick skillet, which most people here have. We also love this recipe because it uses day-old rice, which is a great way to use leftover rice, which means you can make a lot and have it be tasty the next day as well. We actually love the flavor of jasmine rice, which is really aromatic, but you can also use long grain white rice or basmati rice for this. But you really have to use cold rice and day-old rice is best. If you use hot or warm rice, the result is clumpy and gummy. Just what you want for a delicious, <laughs> quick supper on a Tuesday night. So I remember he used pork belly as the meat mm -hmm. uh, to flavor it, um, which you can get here, but it's not as common as it is in Thailand. So what do we use? We actually used pancetta, which is much easier to find over here, and it's quite similar to pork belly. We tried bacon, but we didn't like the smoky flavor of bacon. So pancetta is similar to bacon in that it's cured, but it's not smoked. So it took away that smoky flavor that we didn't like. So you could use it on cured bacon, though, too, which is not smoky. Sure. If you find unsmoked bacon, you can use that in a pinch, too. We did prefer pancetta, but you can use that as well. So for our sauce, we combine fish sauce, soy sauce, water, and sugar together. And you want to make sure you use a really good fish sauce, like Red Boat. You know, I just learned recently that fish sauce is actually made from fish. <laughs> I'm kind of Surprise. Slow. Surprise. <laughs> it's made just from anchovies, and it it's, sits up to a year in a barrel, and the premium sauces like Red Boat, it's, that, it's like the first pressing. The spigot's at the bottom. Uh, it comes out. It actually doesn't taste very fishy at all. It's the evil of fish. It's the evil of fish. And if you buy any other brand, just look on the side. You really shouldn't have any other ingredients. Essentially, just anchovies. Yep. So there you go. And then the next thing we do is in the skillet over medium-high heat, we cook two lightly beaten eggs and then the pancetta. And then we take both out of the pan, after which we add the aromatics scallion, shallot, and garlic. Add back in the cooked rice and then the sauce and add back in the pancetta and egg. It's really quick. So it's obvious this is a really quick supper. It takes 15 minutes to make. It has lots of different flavors in it, which I, I really like. But the secret is to have leftover rice. It's not just a convenience, it's essential. Yep, that's exactly right. Thank you, Raina. Thanks, Chris. 
You can find all of our recipes at MilkStreetRadio.com. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Let's take some of your cooking questions next with my co-host, Sarah Moulton, star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals and author of Home Cooking 101. Hi, welcome to Milk Street. Who do we have on the phone? Hi, this is Land from Lincoln, Nebraska. Wow, cool. I've never been to Nebraska. So you have a question for us. I do. So I like to make French toast for my kids in the morning, and I always put cinnamon in it. But the problem is because of the oil content in the cinnamon, it tends to float on the top. So the first few pieces of French toast get lots of cinnamon, and then the rest don't. And I was wondering, is there some way to incorporate that better into the milk and egg mixture or just dust it on maybe after I dunk it? You know, I used to make French toast for my oldest girls when they were growing up uh, for breakfast. I did breakfast and the walk to the bus stop. You know, I must have done that a hundred times and the cinnamon <laughs> floated on the top. And I never thought about it until now. It's like, okay, good point. I don't know. Sprinkle the cinnamon on after it's done is probably the best. Or cinnamon sugar. Cinnamon sugar would be good, yeah, at the and, end. And do they have maple syrup with their French toast? Yep. Because maple and cinnamon is a wonderful combination. I would just sprinkle cinnamon sugar on top because there's really, I just don't see any other way around it. Okay. Yeah, the cinnamon's just not going not to mix, mix with in. the, uh, the yeah. water, which is the milk, whatever you're using. And that's okay. a good point. It's like the light bulb just went off. <laughs> Ka-jing. <laughs> or you could try another herb like um, ground cardamom, you know, which oh. is sort of in the same pocket but not as oily. No, 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 no. Look, here's the deal. I have a pancake recipe I've used for like 30 years. Don't my kids. change a thing. And every couple of years, like I try to change, I add a little cornmeal to it, like, they immediately know. No. If, like if I go from half a teaspoon of vanilla to like three-quarter teaspoon. Uh-oh. Yeah. Okay, Dad, don't, don't mess with it. Don't mess with All kids. Right. Okay, back to the cinnamon sugar yeah, idea. For, forget the cardamom. All right. Yeah. Okay. All right. Never mind. <laughs> okay, well, thank you very much. You're welcome. Thank, thank you, Julian. Thanks for calling. Mm-hmm. Bye-bye. Hello, who's calling? Linda. Hi, Linda. Where are you calling from? Madison, Alabama. How can we help you? I am having questions about vinegars. I was given some bottles of flavored vinegar. I was very excited at first and all the things I could do with it, and so then I really could only think of vinaigrettes. And so I was making salads like they were going out of style and got kind of bored of that and uh, looked online really couldn't find anything to do with these flavored vinegars. And so I went and got them out today, and um, I got one of them out, and uh, there was like sludge in the bottom, so I'm shaking it up, getting it mixed up and stuff, and the other one, didn't mix up at all. It's just kind of like gelatinous. That's called a mother. <laughs> That's the culture that turns whatever liquid it was beforehand, usually it's wine, into vinegar. There's nothing wrong with it. Well, any rate, how do you like these vinegars straight up? I mean, do they taste good? They're not bad because that high alcohol, you know, the vinegar, 8% is kind of, it's sharp, but it's, it's flavorful. Both of them are very fruity. One is um, passion fruit and the other is raspberry. I started out with uh, probably about 12 to 16, so I probably have about six bottles left now. Okay, it's time for my theory. Now. What? Uh, He's going to tell you My wife taught me this theory. If you go to a store, don't buy something, if it's a piece of clothing, that you wouldn't wear out of the store. The same thing is true in the kitchen. If you open the door and you have a product there and you go like, eh, well, I'll use it later. No, nope. done. I mean, just mm. get rid of it, use it up. 
because otherwise, two years from now, you're going to have 40 bottles of different things that you never <laughs> use. You really have to be ruthless. Well, you do have a point about that. Yeah. Oh, well, that's why I got rid of the other bottles is, yeah, I just yeah. ran out of room, and they were hogging space. And then, you I, don't, and then you don't even know what you have anymore. I, I would pick three bottles or two bottles you really like, and mm. the rest... I'm just trying to figure out a way not to waste food. I know, because you have this French... No, that's thing. not just... Well, that is. That's very yeah, European. It is. Well, that was why I had those bottles for so long. I mean, they sat in there for a couple of years, and, yeah, it pained me to get rid of them, because I knew somebody could do something with them. I just didn't know what to do with them. Be ruthless. Yeah. Yes. I'm going to agree, finally. Yeah. Okay. Thanks for calling. Thanks for your help. Okay, Thank take you. care. Bye. Bye-bye. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. If you'd like your cooking question answered, give us a ring anytime, one 855 That's 855-426-9843. You can also email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, uh, this is uh, Dennis Kirschbaum from Rochester, New York. How are you? I am good. How are you? This is an honor and a delight. How can we help you? The segment that you did with the Turkish chef, Anna Sorton, mm-hmm. and you asked her a question at the end of the segment. The gist of your question was, why is the hummus that you get in America so terrible? What she responded, which was that she thought it had a lot to do with the quality of the olive oil, really caught my attention because I'm kind of a hummus nut. And most of the hummus and the hummus recipes that I've encountered from the Middle East don't actually have any olive oil in them at all. It's used as a garnish. There are two things. You're right and you're in luck. My editorial director just got back from Tel Aviv two days ago in Palestine and uh, spent four days uh, eating and making hummus or hummus. Oh, that's awesome. And you're absolutely right. Olive oil is a garnish. They use very small chickpeas. They're not large like the ones we have here. Right. Uh, right. They have a lot more flavor. They also use a lot more tahini yes. than we do here. And they have this wonderful technique of kind of swirling it in the bowl. The other thing we found, or he found, was that they serve it warm. They don't serve it room temperature. So but you're right. right. Hummus is really about the garnish because they put can, a lot of different things on it. Can I just ask a question sure. to the two of you? Because I love hummus. I've read that it's better to start with the dried chickpeas and soak them overnight. Yes. But I've also read that it's a really good idea to remove the skins. If I could talk about this for a, for a second. If you cook the chickpeas with baking soda, right. it does two things. One is it makes them incredibly soft and cook faster. And it also seems to somehow dissolve the skins on the chickpeas so you get incredibly smooth hummus without peeling. Jason Hirsch, my editor, asked the same question because he found it to be extremely smooth. The answer is, in both Tel Aviv and Palestine, is they put it in a huge food processor and run it for about three minutes. (laughs) Uh-huh. So they just whip the heck out of it. Baking soda works too. You know, if you're cooking at home, hey, I think you do have the time to skin them. So next time I mm. make hummus, I'm going to try it. So there. Well, Sarah, it's very tedious. I can Sarah, you you've, you've done it, huh? You have. Just to get the food processor. It does out. work. I okay. will tell you that it does work. Right. But it's very, very tedious. tedious. I, I say stick with the baking soda. Now Sarah has some homework. Uh, yeah, I do. Right. Dennis, thank well, you so thank much. You. It was really an yeah. honor talking with both of you. Great thank call. You. Thanks. Thank you. Take care. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. After the break, we travel to the Baekyung Sa Temple Complex in South Korea to learn about the spiritual cooking practice of Chef Chung Kwan.
I'm Christopher Kimball, and now here's a word from our friends at Allagash Brewing Company, who love food as much as we do here at Milk Street. Hi, this is Jason Perkins. I'm the brewmaster at Allagash, and I've been making Allagash White in Portland, Maine since 1999. So a white beer is a very old style of beer. Traditionally, it was brewed with spices of some type, typically coriander and orange peel. And I think one of the things that makes Allagash White distinctive and different is the rare combination of complexity and drinkability. And it's sometimes remarkable to stop and realize that I never get tired of it. You know, I'll open a can or I'll pour a glass and the first sip and I'm like, man, this beer is good. There are a lot of different ways that folks can enjoy an Allagash White, and here are some of the examples of what folks here at the brewery like to do. My favorite thing to pair with an Allagash White is simple, beautiful seared scallops over a bed of fresh greens with blood orange and shaved fennel. My favorite would probably have to be like an Italian or a hoagie, capicola, pickled vegetables, Crusty bread, it's got that nice lemony, zesty character that just gets you ready for the next bite. The ultimate pairing for me is this dish called bosom, which is this like big pork shoulder with like salt and brown sugar. We also call it candy pork in my house and a little like scallion ginger sauce. It's like lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, and it's just perfection. My other top choice was like a hot dog. Like just have a hot dog and have an Allagash White. You don't need to dress it up. There's something about mussels with beer, especially the white, that is just so good. I feel like it goes really well with different soft cheeses that aren't too dominant, but then also with like spicy Indian food. So I think it's just really versatile. I could imagine like something like um like lemon meringue pie, that would be really nice. Pairing Allagash White with carrot cake is a thing of beauty. This maybe it sounds really boring, but pepperoni pizza. <laughs> I feel like after a long week, having like a nice warm pepperoni pizza and a cold Allagash White is just like you made it. Like you did your week, you deserve this pizza, you deserve this beer. It's perfect in summer, it's perfect in winter. I haven't really found a flavor that I don't think works really well with Allagash <laughs> Yeah, so not only do I drink it while I cook, I often cook with it. So if I'm creating some kind of stew, I'll add a little bit of Allagash White to it. A lot of people use Allagash White in like a fried fish batter. Anywhere where you can add like a spritz of lemon or a spritz of lime, that could be the beer. We are very food-minded here at Allagash, obviously. (laughs) And I think because of that, Allagash White is kind of subtle in a way that not all beers are, and I think that makes it very food-friendly. I think it tends to unlock qualities in the food that you otherwise wouldn't necessarily notice. Like it's not too hoppy or it's not too sweet, so it sits right in the middle and sort of brings the flavors of the dish to life. If you ask anyone here at Allagash, we're pretty much all stands for this beer. We love it so much because every time you have it, you pick up something new. Every time you come back to it, you're reminded like, oh wow, yeah, that's really good.
This is Jason Perkins again. Just wanted to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. Head to Allagash.com slash locator to find Allagash White near you. For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Right now, we're traveling to South Korea. We asked our Seoul-based reporter, Jason Struther, to travel a few hours south of Seoul to interview the venerable Chung Kwan. She's a devout Zen Buddhist nun. For her, cooking is a kind of prayer, and her spiritual practice has attracted a lot of attention in the food world. Jason and Jung Kwan are standing on the temple property, and they stop to take a look at an ancient orange tree. Why, why is this tree special? Kwan uses the fruit to make a fermented extract, which she pours over vegetables and also salads. It clears the blood and calms you down, she says. Uh, so this a uh, tengja tree. Mm, the type of orange tree. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And then it's 500 years old, which is very rare. And then in March, the, the flower blooms. And then in May, the, you can see the fruit. I caught up with Jason later on to hear about his meeting with John Kwan. Hey, Jason, how are you? Pretty good, Chris. How about you? Pretty good. Uh, you've had more fun than I have had lately. You went to visit uh, Chung Kwan, a very well-known mm. Buddhist monk, and she's known a lot for her food and cooking. So, so tell me about it. Right. Well, the venerable Chung Kwan, uh, she is really made a name for herself uh, in the past year or so. Even a Netflix documentary series is out about her. Uh, I went down to her temple, which is a few hours south of Seoul at the Chunjinam Monastery is where she does all her work. We took a taxi, me and my translator, up some winding streets, up into the hills. The view out over the valley was beautiful. Chris, I've been to a lot of Buddhist temples in South Korea before, but this was special. So when you spoke to her, did you get a sense of how she connects her faith, her Buddhism, and cooking, how they're related? <laughs> Junk Kwan spoke in sort of Buddhist mantras, so it was a little hard to get all the nuances. But... From what I could discern from our chat, I mean, she she sees humans and food and the earth. It's, we're all a part of the universe. So when she eats a mushroom, she is, in a sense, taking on as its essence. Every ingredient has the spiritual energy, but especially the mushroom. It's brought up by moisture, and then it grows inside the soil, thanks to the energy of the nature. So it is especially valued. Her whole process of cooking, to her, is is sort of like meditation. She says she sees really no difference in between praying and cooking. The, The joy of food and preparing food and eating food Buddhism doesn't seem, at least in your experience with this trip, there doesn't seem to be, you know, the joy of cooking, for example. The joy is not there in in the food, specifically? 
Right. I think Jung Kwan and Julia Child would be on opposite ends of the spectrum <laughs> uh, for this one, Chris. No, she she sees it as, you know, it's her way of connecting with the universe, that by taking food out of the soil, she's, in a sense, giving it new life, and it's becoming a part of her to a degree. So w- what did you cook? Did you cook together, or she demonstrated something? What did you cook? One of the dishes she made was with uh, very thin wheat noodles called somyun, and she mixed that in with kimchi, which is a, a type of cabbage. It's a, it's a leafy green vegetable that has been fermented to into the ubiquitous Korean side dish kimchi. I think we all know that. So she mixed that in with the noodles, a little bit of soy sauce, stirred that around and served cold. It was delicious. Um, when a person becomes monk, they learn how to cook rice so as to give the rice to the Buddha. And she also learned how to cook side dishes. Rice, giving rice means a virtue. And then cooking side dishes is... Ah, yeah, side dishes mean like wisdom. Get a wisdom from making panchan. Side dishes are considered wisdom, and rice is a virtue. <laughs> That's just great. Well, I have to say, it's fascinating to me that when you take a philosophy like Buddhism and marry it to the kitchen, the question is, does it say something to you about the nature of Buddhism, or does it say something to you about the nature of the kitchen? Mm. And so let me ask that question. Do you view cooking and preparing food differently than you did before you went to the monastery? Hmm. After visiting Jung Kwan at her temple and and talking to her about food, I mean, there was just things that I I never really considered before. And I I realized that maybe I do frivolously – think about food that it's it is just something to to satisfy me it is just i'm hungry i eat uh, she looks at that as a, a type of greed actually and uh I, I think through buddhism she hopes to overcome that and she also had a really interesting point about emotion in food when you are angry you should stop cooking when you cook while you are angry, the emotion will be inserted in the food. And then when people eat the food, they will have the like angry character. In Korean cuisine, a lot of dishes are fermented. Kimchi, for instance. And she sort of likened that to going to a sauna for a human that, you know, by sweating out the excess unnecessary moisture, you you make the food more delicious and you get down to its essential flavors. And that's what fermenting is all about, which that that really impressed me. Yes, the patience is important. Fermenting some ingredients for a long time means like lowering the characters of the ingredients. Like the traits of the ca- uh, the ingredients like like sour will be reduced, reduced and like in order to make jangatji which is a fermented korean food like pickled radishes pickle, pickle you mix 
the salt and the radish and then if you uh, after a long time the the water of the radish will be removed it's the same as your like your skin like unnecessary moisture in your body will be removed through the sweat so she compared the process of cooking to the human's body wow cooking is like perspiration huh. well, I never thought about it like that you know I found over the years that famous food people have their little uh, addictions snacks uh, Julia Child loved goldfish uh, Jim Beard loved bacon and a few other things did, did you know have any do you notice anything uh, in that kitchen where there's a little bit of a snack there uh, anything that came in a foil wrap package uh, or or are they actually living the life they say they are? Well, you know, Chris, I, I asked Jung Kwan about that. There, there were no visible signs of junk food or any sort of guilty pleasures. I, I, I told her to, to come clean, more or less. What, <laughs> what does she snack on? Do you have a, a guilty pleasure? Is there ever, is there a type of food that sometimes, a, a fast food that sometimes you crave or... Do you resist at all? Ice cream, vanilla and green tea flavored. She enjoys that now and then. Well, well, now I love her. <laughs> Perfection's a hard thing to take for the rest of us who are far from perfect. I, I'm I'm a big meat lover, Chris. I'm going to admit it, and I told Jung Kwan that too. I don't think she looked down on me, but I I realized that. You know, after having the food at the temple, the somyeon noodles with, with the goat kimchi, as well as this seaweed dish she made me, as well as this nice steaming bowl of soybean uh, stew, this duenjan jjigae, I mean, I did feel really, I felt really healthy and, and happy. I, I gather there was a, a Buddhist parable of some kind in relation to food, uh, the that she talked to you about. Uh, that's right, Chris. I asked her, I said, is there an old Buddhist story that, uh, you know, concerns food? And Jung Kwan told me a little story that she likes to tell to visitors. The parable is that before the Buddha was enlightened, he meditated and prayed for six years at the same place. And he didn't even eat or sleep but then he had soup which was a mix of rice and milk and then he started to do the meditation again for 49 days really hard and then he became enlightened so that's the origin of temple food so uh, in buddhism you should eat just as much as you need it and you should eat with pleasure, pleasure, and you should eat vegetable. Eat with pleasure and vegetables. Mm. Okay. Thank you, Jason. Um, that was fascinating. I've always been interested in Buddhism and cooking. I guess it means I, I can't have that old-fashioned Dunkin' Donuts I just ate for breakfast. Um, <laughs> so I have you to thank for that. <laughs> Put down the bear claw, Chris, and I'll catch you at the temple. Okay. Th thank you so much. Really, uh, great story. Thank you. Take care. That was Jason Struther, a reporter based in Seoul, South Korea. 
John Oliver, host of Last Week Tonight, recently interviewed the Dalai Lama. Oliver, a comedian, found himself in very good company. The Dalai Lama enjoys a good laugh, especially in the face of adversity, which makes me reconsider Chung Kwan, the Buddhist cook. She can find the meaning of the universe in a bowl of soup, but what really makes her special is that she also knows how to truly enjoy every spoonful. As the famous Buddhist parable says, don't eat too much, but be sure to eat with pleasure. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Right now, it's time to check in with our regular contributor, Dan Pashman of the Sporkful Podcast. Dan Pashman, how are you? Good, Chris. How are you? Uh, I'm not even going to ask you what's on your mind because I can never guess. Well, I'm from New Jersey, Chris, and my home state has been on my mind a lot lately. So a little while back, we did an episode of the Sporkful Podcast all about this iconic New Jersey food called pork roll or Taylor ham. And it, it's a controversial food in New Jersey because it goes by two different names depending on where in New Jersey you live. Same food, it's the same food, but people in New Jersey can't agree on what to call it. It's a processed pork, like a deli meat. Uh, it comes in a long casing. You, you slice it up, you get a flat circle like a slice of bologna or salami. Typically, it's fried up on a griddle or a grill. And the most iconic way to eat it in New Jersey is on an egg and cheese sandwich. Have you ever had one of these, Chris? Can I just ask, uh, is this pork, when you say pork product, that makes me think uh, it's made of snouts and other <laughs> odd, odd bits of the pig? Or is this a high-quality meat? Well, quality, see, that sounds like a subjective <laughs> term, Chris. <laughs> of course. <laughs> uh, it, it is processed, um, okay. but, you know, I, I may, I, uh, I'm a nose-to-tail kind of guy. In other words, a nose and tail kind of guy. That's probably what's in it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay. This is all coming back, as you know, Chris. Now the hot, finest restaurants in America are probably going to be serving this pork roll pretty soon because snout to tail is all the rage now. So this is a round of a griddled pork product. That's right. It is smoky. It is sweet. It is hmm. cured. It, it is in its scent similar to perhaps bacon but uh, in its texture, it's much meatier. It's it's not light and crispy. Uh, it's salty, mm. and it Sounds it is it's fantastic. And I, I think that it is the perfect companion to egg and cheese. If you do the egg over medium, so it's a little bit runny, and you get that yolk running into the melted cheese and combining with mm. the fat and the salt, and you get because there's also sugar in the pork roll, you get a little caramelization around the edges of the slice. It is just fantastic, and. I find this food very compelling for two reasons. Well, three. Number one, it's delicious. But number two, it is an iconic food of New Jersey. Yet, number three, the people of New Jersey have been fighting about it for 150 years. Oh, this, so is, was, not, this is not a new thing. The food has been around for 150 years. It is not a new thing. And on one hand, it is beloved in New Jersey because a lot of New Jersey is an extension of New York City. A lot of it is an extension of Philadelphia. And so there's not a whole lot of sort of pure, unadulterated New Jersey culture. And pork roll, or Taylor ham, as it's called in the north, where I'm from, is pure New Jersey. It was invented in New Jersey in the Trenton area. The two main companies that make it are both still based in New Jersey, still owned by the same families, still making this this food in New Jersey. So it is beloved, but yet the people of New Jersey can't agree on what to call it, to the point that there was a fight in the state legislature. They tried to declare a state sandwich this past year, and they couldn't agree. 
the bill is now stalled in committee. <laughs> because, because of nomenclature? Right, because oh. they can't agree if the official state sandwich should be pork roll egg and cheese or Taylor ham egg and cheese, even though those two sandwiches are the same sandwich. Well, it says more about government than it does about the well, food. Well, yeah, true, true. But then just recently, two guys in Trenton started a pork roll festival there, and they were and expecting 1,000 people. They got 5,000. It was a huge success. Mm. But then even the two of them had a falling out, and now there's two dueling pork roll festivals in Trenton on the same day every Memorial Day weekend. So let me see if I get this right. You like this. I mean, it's delicious, yes. but you went past that quickly. You like it because it's local and people are arguing about it. it yeah, I, I think that it is. There's nothing else quite like it. I love it. But it's also it's a very interesting sort of piece of local culture. There are other regions that have a food that is really specific to that place. I think that this one even stands out among many of those because people in New Jersey are so protective of the few things that are, that are ours. You know, we got Bruce Springsteen, we got John Bon Jovi, and we got Taylor Ham. And we're going to hold on to those things. And not in that order, by the way. (laughs) Well, I I guess it shows that people care deeply about it because they care so deeply they get into a fight about it. So there's passion. That's number four, right? There's passion. Right. There's so much passion that if you marry into a New Jersey family, you will be told early on whether you're marrying into a pork roll family or a Taylor (laughs) Ham family. And you better well make sure you refer to it by the right name. Well, you're not going to get along well with your in-laws. <laughs> that could be, that'd be dangerous. Th- Dan Pashman, thank you so much. We have a, a passionate story about a local pork roll. Excuse me, Taylor Ham. Yeah, watch it, Chris. I'm covering both my bases. <laughs> Dan, thank you. Thanks, Chris. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. After the break, more of your cooking questions with our co-host, Sarah Moulton. You know, wonderful pistachios have become my go-to snack. Now, I could list all the health benefits. They're a good source of protein, fiber, and unsaturated fats. But for me, flavor comes first, and that's why it's pistachios, not peanuts, in our household. Wonderful pistachios come in a variety of flavors and sizes, including sea salt and vinegar, chili roasted, and smoked barbecue. Check out wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more. That's wonderfulpistachios.com. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability They'll have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, 
HelloFresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. We're back with Sarah Moulton. She's going to help me take some more of your call. Sarah, you ready? I am ready. Welcome to Milk Street Radio. Who's calling? This is Kevin Friedman from Cleveland, Ohio. Hey, Kevin. How are you? Doing well. How are you guys doing? Good. Good. How can we help you? So I had a question about vegetables that were lower in starch. I've been on a low starch kick recently and trying to add some more veggies into my repertoire of cooking. And recently, I've been messing around with turnips and kohlrabi, beets, celery, things like that to sort of supplement, I guess, in exchange for a white potato. Um, you know, just to get more of a variety in my diet. And uh, I'm curious to see if you guys had any ideas of how to duplicate the texture of a roasted potato, but say with one of those other vegetables. Well, the problem is the other vegetables have a higher water content than potato. And so it's hard to get the uh, drier, starchier texture and the crispier outside, right? I mean, that, that's a problem. One thing you could do is slice it into wedges, almost like fennel. Very high heat oven, coat it with oil and some salt in a bowl, lay that out on a, even put it on a preheated roasting pan if you can, and roast at high heat. And that way you can get a lot of evaporation and you probably get a better texture. But I don't... It's never going to be as crispy. It, no. Although, you know what, two things I want to say. One is potatoes, white potatoes get a bad rap and they really shouldn't. There's lots of nutrition in white potatoes. I know people are like, ah, white food, throw white food out the window. But they're very high in potassium and it's just what we put on them that's a problem. So, Well, you, you know, rutabaga, this brings back a memory. They're very popular in Canada. We don't eat them much here. But yeah. we used to have something called the corner house in Vermont in summers where one Saturday night a month, there'd be a little, you know, bachelor farmer get together. A and bachelor some, farmer get together. They're bachelor farmers and everybody else. And they'd sit on the couches and everyone would get together. We'd rent a movie. And unfortunately, the woman in charge of renting the movie got it from the Vermont Department of Agriculture. So we would sit there for 20 minutes watching movies on how to enjoy rutabaga. Oh, dear. That was the And you were hoping for some racy... Well, To Kill a Mockingbird. Okay. Uh, some meaningful movie. Yeah. So you say I, bachelors. I'm like, what are they watching? I've watched a lot of rutabaga movies. Okay. And everyone's smiling. No, actually, I have another suggestion. Which okay, is, great. And I'm going to get Chris's idea about this one. What if you cut them into sticks, you know, or slices, yeah. and then coated them in either flour, you know, like lightly, and just sauteed them, like wonder flour maybe, which is a little more granular, 
and then sauteed them to get color on them and finished them in a lower oven. But the other thing is if you're trying to avoid flour, one of the things we've talked about a lot on the show is uh, chickpea flour, which is ground chickpeas, which is also protein and can give you a wonderful sort of chickpea flavor. Plus, it adds protein, and it's, you know, you're trying to eat healthy. It might be a nice thing. So I would experiment with different crumb coatings. On I, the I think the matchsticks are the, the best way to go. Yeah, that's yeah good. might be good the idea. best way to go. Yeah, Kevin, hopefully perfect. we help maybe a little bit, <laughs> sort of. I don't know, a Rutabaga movie. I just think that's in my future. I'm not making this up. <laughs> yeah. A lot of fun living in Vermont. Yes. Thanks, Kevin. Thanks. Thank you. Take, yeah, care. take care. Okay. Hello. Welcome to Milk Street. Who do we have on the line? This is Kim Garner from Keller, Texas. Hi, Kim. Hi. How are you today? I'm great. You have a question for us, I'm sure. Yeah, it's just something I've always wondered about. Like when you're following a recipe and it calls for an onion, but it doesn't specify the variety, like a white, yellow, or red, which variety should you use? Is there a rule to follow? Well, That's an excellent That question. is a really excellent question. I would say there are some rules, but at the end of the day, if all you have is a white onion and you'd have to drive 30 miles to get a yellow onion, I wouldn't bother. Chris, wouldn't you agree with that? This is interesting because I do the shopping mostly on weekends. I actually like shopping because I like checking stuff out. I just buy white onions now. I find them milder in the raw state, and I also find them, oddly enough, to be in better shape because some of the yellow onions seem a little soft, not quite as good. I just like white onions, and I assume when you cook them down, well, you probably know better than I do. Is there a big difference once you cook them down? There's a little bit of a difference. I mean, the thing about onions, it's sort of how they're grown and how much sulfur they have in them. So the same thing that makes us cry when we cut an onion is the same thing that develops into deep, wonderful flavor later on when you cook it. And the onions that generally have the most of that are the yellow storage onions, And they're grown for that reason. They're grown in soil that has more of those sulfur compounds. Hmm. They're also grown in hotter climates, and they do better with less water. So it sort of concentrates that sulfur. So that, for me, would be the onion Hmm. I'd use for onion soup when you want a really deep onion flavor. Interestingly enough, people think that they're low in sugar. They're actually high in sugar. They have more sugar than, say, Vidalia's or any of the other. Yeah, onions, you know, the Walla Walla's, the Texas, whatever the number is, you know, those that people say you can eat raw. The reason you can eat those raw is because they are lower in sulfur, Uh. but they're also lower in sugar, interestingly enough. So I wouldn't use those as much for cooking. The red onions, it's funny because they actually are pretty high in sulfur also, but we all eat them raw. And I think it has something to do with their color, that we just like that. And also that when you add acid to them, they get that beautiful sort of jewel-like look. Just slice onions, throw them in a bowl with some vinegar for 15 minutes. And that actually does a great job of getting rid of that That bite. bite. You know, I think whatever onion works for you, but white onions, which also have more sulfur than the sweet Vidalias or the Walla Wallas or whatever, are used a lot in Mexican cooking and uh, tend to be, I think, a little bit milder than the storage onions. So that's good all-purpose onion, too. And then, of course, you have scallions, which are sort of grassy and young and fresh. And well, You know, s- some of the cooks at Milk Street now just keep scallions on hand as sort of an all-purpose seasoning. Well, part of yeah. it is also you at Milk Street, you've been traveling the globe, and so many other cultures use scallions. Right. And it's sort of fun, you know, to play around with, with a new onion. Those little onions are really, except for the ones that are like you've sat on and the chipoline. <laughs> Those little onions are mainly there just to use as little onions. 
But the Cipolline have, again, more flavor, more developed Is sulfur. Is it Cipolline or Cipollini? I don't know, probably Cipollini. So I don't know if that helps any. But, that was interesting. But also, I mean, in, yeah. at the end of the day, I think you can use any in place of another. They're all in the, what is it, the Allium family. Mm-hmm. And uh, certainly you'll get slightly different results. It's a big family, <laughs> extended family, aunts, it's, uncles. It's a wonderful family. We love that family. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, thank you. It's very interesting, and I can't wait to uh, try some different varieties and see how my recipes turn out. That's Sarah Moulton on Onions 101. <laughs> Love onions. Mm-hmm. Course, They're so important. Now there'll be a quiz. Yes. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, Kim. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. If you'd like your cooking question answered, give us a ring anytime. One eight five five four Bowtie. That's eight five five four two six nine eight four three. You can also email us at questions at milkstreetradio.com. Hi, my name is Autumn White. How can we help you? One of the things I've been trying to do more of is make crusts and kind of things that use shortening butter or lard. And I've been trying to figure out how I can use lard. If I can substitute lard for butter, for shortening, you know, for things like in crusts, if you can use those combinations in different types, like, for example, in savory versus sweet. Yes. The question is, what kind of lard? If it's leaf lard, which is hard to find, if you go to the supermarket, it's not leaf lard. It's the fat around the kidney and the pig, and it has no pork flavor at all. It's very neutral. And that was the original shortening used in pie crust in America. It produces the best pie crust. It's extremely flaky. So if you can get leaf lard, that's the number one thing to use in any kind of pie crust, sweet or savory. If you want it flaky. But if you're looking for that nice flavor, you might want to do half and half butter and lard. Leaf lard, I mean. Well, no, the best pie crust I've ever made or had is 100% leaf lard. It is just phenomenal. But the flavor? This is the French thing now. This the is butter. the butter. Butter, well, butter, no, butter. I, I usually use half butter and half Crisco. Because Crisco gives you a flakier crust than yeah, butter. Yeah, it does. And butter gives you some flavor. But, you know, leaf lard's great. Are you buying leaf lard or are you just buying the supermarket lard? I probably just bought the supermarket yeah. lard. I tried actually using it yesterday and I made tamales for the first time. Mm-hmm. And I felt like I could definitely... Taste yeah. the pork lard. Yeah. Now, yeah. I will say something though. We just did some piadini, which is an Italian flatbread you just cook in a skillet a couple minutes aside. And we made it not with lard, just oil. And it had no flavor. And then we decided to use lard, which is what they used to use. It was fabulous. It also made a flakier, more complex bread. I think lard, you heard it here first. Lard's coming back. It is. Do you know it actually has some healthy properties too? Well, as opposed to what, margarine? Yeah. No, it has omega-3s, oh. depending if the pig was fed grass and good stuff. So yeah, go ahead and, and use that or split it 50-50 with butter if you like. A little bit of lard has a lot of flavor and will make things flakier. So. If you get the leaf lard, can you use that instead of, for example, butter in less savory recipes, like if more for dessert things? Like, for example, what? Like, for example, yeah, like if something that calls for shortening for cookies or some kind of dessert, I mean, Mm. would you be able to substitute it if it doesn't have flavor then and it would have the same property? You're not going to make butter cookies with leaf lard. Then you have lard cookies. I think pastry is really the best thing to use it for would be the ideal. Bread, pastry, that sort of thing. Where you're not looking for the flavor of the butter. Yeah, and I mean, the leaf lard, by the way, has to be rendered. So if you can buy rendered leaf lard, which means it's cooked very low heat. It takes a long time to render it. It's a few hours, small pieces, a little bit of water. So you want to buy rendered leaf lard. Okay, I'll have to start looking. Okay. And regular lard is great for savory applications if you don't use too much of it. Right. And 
One last thing. Can you use bacon grease if you don't have lard as a substitution, if you don't mind the bacon flavor? I would definitely try to strain it out a little bit. But yeah, you could use that. Yeah. But it will be very okay. porky. Yeah. yeah you you okay. want to use just a little bit of it. Yeah. Give it a shot and try to find red or leaf lard because that's just a wonderful thing. Yes. Yeah. Okay. All right. Um, thanks. Bye-bye. Thank you. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. This week's Milk Street Basic is all about freezing rice. You know, many recipes call for leftover rice, like the fried rice recipe we did this week. And it turns out that freshly made rice is really no good for those recipes. It's too starchy and too soft. So the question is, how do you make and store leftovers? Well, it's actually simple. With the leftover rice, place it in a Ziploc bag and just put it in the freezer. You can defrost it on the countertop or even in a microwave. Now you can produce dinner in just minutes. Stir-fried rice, a quick rice soup maybe, or maybe for use in a quesadilla. Here at Milk Street, we like to make double batches of rice, so we always have leftovers on hand. Now it's time to talk to Belgian food blogger and author Regula Isouin. In her new cookbook, Pride in Pudding, Isouin researches the history of pudding in British culture going all the way back to the 14th century, from peas pudding and haggis through jam roly-poly, plum duff, and spotted dick. Welcome to Milk Street. Thank you. Well, I love your book, and, you know, I love any kind of pudding. So let's go way back in time and talk about puddings. You reminded me that in Homer... In the Odyssey, Odysseus comes home, and uh, there was a black pudding cooked in a goat's stomach, which I guess is part of the definition of a pudding, right? Early on, they were almost stuffings, right? They were they were stuffed into whole animals yes. or stuffed into the stomachs of animals or in the intestines. In- essentially, they're almost sausages, right, of some kind. Yes, you totally beat me to it. If you want to know what a pudding is, you have to go back to the Middle Ages when the word pudding actually meant the insides of an animal or of, or a human. Puddings were back then just exclusively made into animal guts, stomachs, even uterus, and, you know, sausage intestines. So, you know, it was a custom in that period to name things after how they looked, or in this case, in which recipient they were prepared. So after a while, pudding became synonymous for the filling, and puddings were being made in earthenware pots, pudding cloths, and after a while, the name pudding became the name for the mass, the filling, the batter. Now, you also mentioned, this was interesting, that it was almost a one-pot meal, so people boiled everything because that was uh, the obviously easiest way of cooking and most efficient. And so you might have a joint, uh, let's say, or something, a rabbit or something in the water, but you might also throw in a pudding so you could cook the pudding at the same time as you cook the meat. Is that right? Yes, exactly. In the past, they would only have one big cauldron on their fire. They didn't have pots and pans and all kinds of little utensils. They only had that big cauldron. So they would have been preparing their main meal, which is usually a stew or a pottage. And they would use those bag-like intestines to create a side dish. And that way, they, they, they had something extra. And they would hang that in with the rest of the food being cooked. And I think that's my theory, because those are smaller portions, you know, in a small bag, they would have taken better care of the seasoning and, and, and probably taken more time to actually 
prepare those puddings, which is why probably they became such a favorite because you can see through the ages that pudding is, is such an absolute favorite. So I wanted to talk about sweet and sugar. Um, sugar was a very expensive ingredient in America until later in the 19th century. Uh, there was honey, there was preserved fruits and things. When did pudding start becoming really sweet? Was was it related to the cost of sugar or was it something else? It was definitely related to the cost of sugar and the availability. And uh, it was also because our taste changed. We use so much more sugar today than we use in the past. And it was something that only started to become more sweet. End of the 18th century, beginning of the 19th century. Then people would have started to add more sugar and puddings started to become exclusively sweet dishes as well. Um, t- tell me about the use of the pudding cloth. There were, you know, bowls and stuff originally, I guess, or then intestines or stomachs. It was just because it was more convenient to use? Well, my theory is that people really loved pudding so much that they w- would have been uh, longing for a way to make pudding outside of the slaughter season because basically when when they would have made pudding they would have needed back like intestines so they would have needed an animal so they could not make it outside of the slaughter season so people would have been Hmm. looking at ways to still create pudding like dishes without using an animal intestine to stuff it in so very early on they actually started using a cloth the first time it appeared in a manuscript is very early 15th century. Um, you have different kinds, a lot of different kinds of puddings, and one of them was a Bakewell pudding. And I didn't know anything about this. I'd heard the term. It's a puff pastry shell filled with custard, at least in this case. So could you just talk about the range of things that are called puddings? Because it's a very generic term. It just means dessert almost, right? True, yes. Today, pudding is basically a word for dessert, but there are so many puddings and there are still savoury puddings eaten in the UK as well. So it is something quite ambiguous. Um, But we have boiled puddings and they still exist, which are types of uh, like haggis, um, black pudding, white pudding. And then you have the baked puddings, which are like you said, the Bakewell pudding, which is using either an earthenware recipient or a tart casing or a pastry casing, which encloses the pudding batter. Or fried puddings, batter puddings is another word, which is going into the Yorkshire pudding or the English also had this pudding which was called a syringe fritter. And a churros or a churrera is a syringe. So it it is very interesting to see that all over Europe, we have these very similar and sometimes identical puddings, like blamange appears in all European cookery books as well. So I I guess my my question for you is that I love the book. It has a very um, beautiful... For people who love books, it's one of those books that has weight. Uh, It just... it's it, it could have been a book that's a classic book from the 19th or 18th century. It just has that feel to it. But are there one or two recipes you actually continue to make on a sort of regular basis that, that makes sense to cook now that you love? I make the Bakewell pudding on a very uh, regular occasion. It is a very interesting pudding to eat. Um, it's not prepared today as it is 
in the past because in the past it was made with bitter almonds which are poisonous so today you would use apricot kernels which are still a little bit poisonous but it's okay you probably won't feel much from it um but what what is interesting with that is that bashing the apricot kernels with rose water creates the scent and flavor of marzipan and it's absolute magic when that happens when the nuts release their oil and it mixes with rose water it just the the the, the beautiful smell just puffs up out of your pestle and motor it, it's gorgeous and that you mix with butter and eggs and sugar and that becomes your filling which goes on top of your pastry casing and strips of candied citron or lemon or orange and some raspberry preserve mm. and then on top of that goes that custardy filling and that's baked in the oven and it creates the most glorious pudding regular thank you so much I, it's a lovely book pride in pudding and um i'm, I'm gonna go make the bake well pudding um, as soon as i can thank you yeah. thank you very much for inviting me that was regular Isawin, author of the cookbook Pride in Pudding. As Shakespeare wrote, a rose by any other name, meaning, of course, that a name does not convey the essence of the thing itself. Now, I would argue that the names of English puddings are exceptions. The names are, in fact, the things themselves. So would Dead Man's Arm be the same if it were called Boiled Jam Roly Poly? Or take Flummery, which was originally made of boiled oats. The name is much better than the dessert. So names really do matter, even if one is more afraid of sticks and stones. Thanks for listening to Milk Street Radio. You can listen to our weekly shows on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, and Spotify. You can also get our shows on our very own website. That's MilkStreetRadio.com, where you can download each week's recipe. We'll be back next week. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with WGBH. Executive producers Melissa Baldino and Stephanie Stender. Producer Amy Padula. Production assistant Carly Helmetog. Senior audio engineer Douglas Sugarts. Senior audio editor Melissa Allison with help from Vicki Merrick and Sydney Lewis. Audio mixing by Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media. Production help Debbie Paddock. Theme music by 2Bob Crew. Additional music by George Brandel Egloth. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX. Mm-hmm.